Well, good morning again. We have been taking the month of November to think about uh, the church not so much as a, an architectural structure, a uh, physical structure, but more as a living structure of, of people assembled uh, by Jesus Christ uh, for the purpose of inhabiting us and building us up and causing us to reflect his image to the world. We uh, talked a lot last week as we looked at the book of Hebrews about the way uh, encouragement does that work of building up and renewing our hope. One thing I just wanted to put out as a reminder again, this month we are uh, trying to hear from you. If you could use some encouragement in this season of, of separation, uh, we would love to try to put together these uh, encouragement pods, we're calling them, just groups of a few people. Uh, most likely at this point in time, they'll, they'll function virtually or through phone calls or letters or emails, Zoom, however we uh, can put them together and however you'd prefer to communicate. Um, but all you need to do is reach out to us, uh, call me, send us an email in the office, and let us know that that's something you desire to be a part of, uh, and then we'll help sort of put those together uh, by the end of this month. Um, but as Hebrews says, let us not give up meeting together, spurring one another on, encouraging one another to, to love and good deeds. Today, as we think through this, this building up language of the New Testament, I want to think about the architecture of the church. And in particular, the architecture of God's grace working through us. There are numerous architecturally impressive examples of churches throughout the world. And typically these, you know, beautiful churches have taken years, sometimes decades, to complete. And we might think of the, the Hagia Sophia in Turkey Maybe you think of uh, St. Peter's in Rome, Notre Dame in Paris, St. Paul's in London. But even as impressive and, and uh, you know, detailed as those projects were, none of them even comes remotely close to the, the timetable and the duration of construction of a cathedral in Barcelona called the Sagrada Familia. This cathedral broke ground on its construction in 1882. And for the next 44 years, it was overseen by the architect Antonio Gaudi. And he labored over this project. He was kind of the visionary behind uh, its unique design. He labored over it for 44 years until he died in 1926. And at the point of his death, the project was about one-fifth complete. <laughs> He'd given his whole life to it. It stood at 20% at completion. After that, the, the project was subject to the Spanish Civil War. It uh, suffered fires and arson. And today, 138 years after its groundbreaking, it still stands incomplete, but, but tantalizingly close to completion. If all goes according to plan, uh, in six years they will put the finishing touches on this cathedral. And the last 
The last structure to, to go up will be the central spire. There are 18 spires planned for the church. Twelve to represent uh, the apostles, four to represent the gospels, I think one to Mary, and then the top, the tallest pillar represents Christ as the Lord over his church and will proclaim to the city of Barcelona his place of, of greatness and glory. When the, the spire is complete, it will be 566 feet above the ground, and it will make it the largest church structure in the world. A couple of factors, though, have contributed to, to why this project has taken so long to complete. And the first is that the, the conception of the architect is, is unusual. It's unusually detailed and, and complex in its design. Uh, the whole structure has uh, nearly no right angles in the building. Everything is, uh, is curved and represents this sort of organic feel of, of the cathedral growing out of the ground. In addition to its complexity, though, from its beginnings, uh, the project has insisted on being funded purely by private contributions. There's no government funding. Uh, the Catholic Church has not funded the project from the top down. And so there have literally been millions of individuals who've contributed to this project. The church has been constructed by seven or eight generations of workers in succession. Right? Ordinary people using their gifts to build up this structure. This idea, though, of, of one church built by many hands over a long period of time seems theologically appropriate to me. It seems to, to be the way God builds his living church as well. And at times, I think we may look at the church and we may wonder, why is this taking so long? Why do we see so many pockets of incompletion, things left undone, things that are, are not the way we desire them or conceive of them to be? Why doesn't the church more perfectly bear the glory and the image of Jesus Christ now? But in our impatience, in, in the duration of this project of being the living church of Jesus, we come to Ephesians 4 this morning and we're reminded that it is the architecture of God's grace that builds up the church. It is the working of grace, the gifting of God, that, that makes this growing process possible. And God has poured out that grace into innumerable people, ordinary persons, who have been filled with his extraordinary grace across generations, to realize his vision of being and becoming the church. Specifically this morning, I want to examine where is that grace given to us and how is it at work in us today. Let me pray for us as we open up the word of God. Lord Jesus, you have laid the foundation for your church you continue to build upon that foundation. And as 1 Peter says, you have seen it fit to take our imperfect lives 
and make them like living stones, fashioned and formed into this temple you're building. Lord, that is a grace to us, that you would even include us. But Lord, this morning as I preach through this passage, as our hearts receive this teaching, may we be pleasing in your sight. May we grow to resemble the vision you have for us. Lord, make us ready for the workings of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to pick up in Ephesians 4 in just a second. But I want to I think for a moment about uh, a theology of grace. Grace is... Uh, a vital idea throughout the New Testament, and particularly in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We find the, the word or, or related words to the word charis in the Greek, which is translated grace in some cases. In other cases, it's translated gift. Right? It's this idea of that which is undeserved, that which is freely given, grace. Shows up more than a dozen times in the book of Ephesians. And the first way we may tend to think about grace is, is like it ex- is expressed in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.4 is a familiar passage where it says, Because of God's great love for us, in, he who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. So it is by grace you have been saved. We're familiar with thinking about grace in terms of salvation. God's saving work. Grace takes us from a place of death to a place of spiritual life and rebirth. But if the beginning work of grace is is to bring us out of alienation and into intimacy and life in God's presence, there is this continuing work of grace expressed in Ephesians in what I like to call the, the construction passages. Frequently when we see Paul talk about grace... Not much, uh, you know, not, not too far away in the same passages, he begins to talk about through the work of that grace, God building up a people or a living temple or a family or a household for himself. So in Ephesians 2, at the beginning, right, we see that we're saved by grace. But then at the end of Ephesians 2, verse 22, it says, So in Christ we're all being built together to become a dwelling in which God's God lives by his spirit. It's like God's grace comes to us, he rescues us, he saves us, and then he makes us into the raw materials for that building he's constructing. So we've got this idea of grace saving, but also the idea of grace building up. And we find that same pattern here in Ephesians 4, only it's reversed. At the beginning of Ephesians 4, Paul reminds us that we're one body, we're one people, right? One faith, one baptism, one Lord over this whole household of Jesus. But then in verse 7, he says, to each member that's in this unified new creation, God has given grace. Look with me at Ephesians 4, 7. He says... Into this unity to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He gave it out. This is why it says, 
When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. He's quoting a psalm there. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. So, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to the church. If I were to summarize these first few verses this morning, it's, it's this idea that Jesus is the giver of grace. Jesus is the supplier of grace to his people. Verse 7 says, grace has been given, it's been apportioned to each and every one of us by the person of Jesus Christ. And I get this image in my head of, of Jesus sort of handing out parcels in packages of all different shapes and sizes, filled with the expression of his grace for the church. Right, all these raw materials gifted and given out to us as a body. For Paul, though, in verses 8, 9, and 10, his theological imagination goes to the book of Psalms. And in particular, he thinks of Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a passage that describes Yahweh, the God of Israel, like a king going out in front of his people into battle. And what happens in Psalm 68 is that Yahweh, in his great victory and strength, defeats, he vanquishes the enemy, he returns to his temple house in Jerusalem. He ascends to the, to the height of that mountain on Zion. And then he takes the spoils of that victory and he begins to give them as gifts to his people. Right? In his glorious reign over this household. In verse 11, Paul connects that psalm to Jesus himself, his work. And he says that Jesus, by defeating the powers and principalities of darkness, by, like in Ephesians 2, going down into death itself, into the place where we were his enemies and pulling us out of those things, he has, he has defeated the power of sin and death, but he's chosen to include us in his victory. And he's chosen to give, Paul says, the gifts of that victory to his new church, to his new people as an expression of grace. And we might ask, well, what kind of gifts has Jesus given? And the answer, the first answer comes in verse 11. The first wave, the first gift that's given, or set of gifts that are given, come in the form of apostles, Paul says, who, who go out and they break up new ground in mission. It's given in the form of prophets who speak the challenging and fresh word of God to his people. It's given in the form of evangelists who proclaim and, and embody and revel in the good news of the gospel. It's given in pastors that shepherd and guide the church. And in teachers who are able to interpret and apply the word of God. It says that Jesus gives people gifts to the church in the form of these, these leaders who are gifted with his grace. 
Right? Jesus has gifted me to be a pastor and a teacher. Those are two of the gifts I see evident in my life as an expression of his grace. And to some of you listening this morning, you may have these gifts as well. Just because you don't serve uh, up from up front, just because you have not been ordained as a, as a pastor, you may be an evangelist, you may be a teacher, you may be prophetic in the way that you speak God's word to others. You may come alongside and pastor. And if God has given you and gifted you these gifts, then let me say we need you to be growing and developing and maturing in those gifts here. Because the blueprint God has for his church is, is to take these gifts and then multiply them outward in order for, for the rest of the church to be built up. And so Jesus supplies us with his grace. He's gifted the church with all these, these gifts. And then in verse 12, it tells us how those gifts get multiplied. It says Jesus gifted apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists in order to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There are entire books written about these two verses. In fact, when uh, five years ago, when the search committee at JCC contacted us and they began to ask me about my philosophy of ministry, what is it that I would desire to do as a pastor in, in coming alongside a church? I sent them a, a lengthy reply, but at the top of that reply were these two verses. Right? Jesus has given leaders, has equipped apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, not so that there would be some professional class of super disciples in the church, right? He didn't call us to do the work of ministry. He's called us to come alongside God's people and equip, equip all the people of God for works of service. And Paul says, in this way, the body of Christ gets built up. Yes, God graciously supplies leaders to, to, to guide and to direct, direct and, and equip and to train and encourage. But every single member of the church is called to the work of building, right? Grace-filled building. It's the expression of, of God and Jesus Christ giving us his grace and that grace moving through us for the edification of the church. The church then is intended to be this formidable force, this, this broad construction team that takes the blueprints of the church that Christ has given us and we build them into a reality together. Think about when a new house goes up. You can see in Vermont there's all kinds of new construction right now. The real estate market's up. But typically, building a house in today's market is not a one-man job, right? You, you hire the architect, and then people show up to dig, and maybe somebody else shows up to pour the foundation. And then you have carpenters, and then you have electricians, and then you have plumbers, and you have the drywall guys, and you have the people that put the roof on, and the windows in, and the kitchen guys, and 
you name it, there's, there's all of these different people contributing to the same house. In the same way, each of us have critical contributions that we are called to make to build up the church. Right? Some of you are gifted to make the church a generous body. Others are, are gifted to help build out our sense of mission. Some of you are, are gifted and equipped to help lead us to, to do justly and to love mercy. Right? We need those gifts in this body. Some of you contribute to, to the steadfast love and encouragement of this place. But in Paul's mind, for the church to be rebuilt and reimagined in, in, in the way that Jesus desires it to be, right, we have to welcome every single one of those contributions. Right, we have to build together. And sometimes a, a new gift calls forth a, an increasing sort of making space and coming alongside and, and maturity from the rest of the body so that it, so that it works in harmony together with one another. But to build together, we need to clearly see the goal, to see what it is we're building. And I think Paul attempts to express that in verse 12. What is this new organism, what is this new household going to look like? And he doesn't say that the church is going to be made to my liking. We don't build out of a desire for our own preferences says we're, we're being built into this master cathedral that's unified in the knowledge and the faith of who Jesus is. We're being built to become more like him, to grow into his full stature, to be filled up, he says, with the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's the goal of where we're being directed. But in order to do that, Paul says, not only do we need to use our gifts, but as we use them, we have to grow in our maturity. Right? There's, there's an inner work that happens within us as well. Look at verses 14 through 16. It says, as we begin to build together, as we grow into the fullness of Christ, verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Grace is a gift given from God. Grace comes through each one of us in the form of the contributions we make that we build into this body. But grace is also something God works to make us mature. We must become gracefully mature. Right? Grace is not this idea that we remain passive, dependent infants in the family of God. We don't just ask God to do everything for us. Or when there's a, a deficit, we just say, well, sorry, that's the way it is. 
right? Grace desires to make us mature. Grace desires for us to put away whatever is deceitful, whatever is divisive, and to speak the truth in love, Paul says, so that we would grow to become in every respect, in every dimension, in every area of our shared life, a mature body of Jesus. Mature Christians, Paul says, build up this body. Mature Christians ask God for the grace to become more like the one we worship. Building up the body makes me think of bodybuilding. And if you remember back in the 90s, there was a, a Saturday Night Live sketch with these two Austrian guys. They weren't really Austrian. They just put on the accent. Right, Hans and Franz. And they were uh, enamored with their cousin Arnold. And if you remember, uh, you know, in addition to all of their flexing that they would do, right, they said their, their one desire, they said, all we want to do is to pump you up. Right? Do you remember these guys? Maybe I was the only one watching <laughs> as a teenager. Those who are gracefully growing into maturity in the body of Christ, recognize that our mission is not about our own personal growth as much as it is to to build up, to pump up one another, to contribute to the church as it grows, Paul says in verse 16, to be built up in love as each part does its work. That last verse, verse 16, I think, beautifully fuses together the reality that grace is both part anatomy and part architecture. Right? Wherever Paul talks about grace, he, he goes back and forth between these visions of a, of a temple growing up and a body being built up. And so there's this idea that as we mature in the grace of God, as we grow up, as we, as we learn and we do the hard work of being conformed to the image of Jesus... That the temple house, the beauty of the thing God is building, gets closer and closer to completion. I want to finish this morning by showing you a brief uh, video clip from the Sagrada Familia, this cathedral in Barcelona. And at the beginning of, it's about 45 seconds, at the beginning you'll see, you know, it's an aerial shot. You'll see the church as it stands today. And then pretty quickly you see that the sort of computer renderings begin to show you what this structure is going to look like as it reaches and nears completion. And as you watch that, may it be an encouragement to you, right? In a time where we see the failings, we see the struggles, we see the incompleteness of the church. We also need to meditate upon the beauty and the hope and the promise that Jesus Christ is supplying grace. He is behind this project and he is bringing it to completion as we each depend upon him working through us. Let me show you that this morning.
The word of God to us is that to each one of us, grace has been apportioned. Grace to save us, grace to make us alive, but also grace to equip us, grace to do works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. May you receive deeply from the grace of God to you today, and may you offer fully the grace of God through you today as well. Pray these things in the name, the great name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord over his church. Amen.